Welcome to episode five of Napaba Coffee House, presented by Napaba, the National Asian Pacific American Bar Association, in collaboration with the Harvard Law School Center on the Legal Profession. My name is Genevieve Antono. I'm in the Harvard Law School class of 2022, and I'm producing this project as part of my student fellowship with the HLS Center on the Legal Profession. It is my great pleasure to introduce you to our host Lawrence Tu and our guest Don Lu. As most of you know, our wonderful host Larry is an experienced C-suite executive. His extensive and super impressive background includes serving as the chief legal officer or general counsel for CBS Corporation, Dell, and NBC Universal. He also served as partner at a major law firm. Meanwhile, our guest for today, Don Liu, is the chief legal and risk officer at Target, one of the world's most recognized brands and one of America's leading retailers. Prior to joining Target, Don was the general counsel at Xerox Corporation. He has also held in-house leadership roles at Toll Brothers, Icon Office Solutions, and Aetna U.S. Healthcare. Don is a graduate of Columbia Law School and Harvard College, where he majored in philosophy and religion. I've spoken to Don a couple of times, and what I love about every single interaction with him is that one, he's really funny, and two, he is very direct and straightforward about his own weaknesses. So Don would casually say things like, "Oh, I was not a model student in high school," or. Um, I wanted to go to theology school, but my friends were like, "Dude, you like to sin." <laughs> Or um, I, when I was a very young GC,、um, I had a 360 evaluation, and my team told me that I was terrible. So Don does not hold back from roasting himself, and I think that's just wonderful. In my personal experience, I think that the scariest、uh, type of people are the ones who think that they are already good. And that they can do no wrong, because these are the same guys who will make excuses and point fingers and blame everyone but themselves. On the flip side, I think that the ability to be honest and transparent about your own weaknesses、uh, takes tremendous strength and is a tremendous strength, because it's only when you're able to look in the mirror and say, "Yeah, you're you're not so perfect,"、uh, that you're able to start、uh, taking ownership and taking accountability. And only then are you able to start making changes and making progress. And so I think that we all can learn so so much、uh, from Don's attitude of you know humility,、um, straightforwardness, and self-awareness. All right, I think you're really really gonna love today's interview.、Um, without further ado, here is Larry and Don. So、uh, let me start、uh, by welcoming you, Don, to our series.、Um, I have a good authority, by the way. You were probably、uh, behind this whole thing and were、uh, involved in the genesis of the program. So I think it's only、um, fitting. That, that, that I'm not sure. Okay. But it, regardless, I think it's only fitting because of that, which I have a good authority that、uh, we sh- you should show up today and pay your dues. And so, but all kidding aside,、um, <laughs> you've been a pathbreaker and. Leader in the Asian legal community for a heck of a long time, and、uh, we are truly honored to have you here today. So, thank you for joining our program today. Thank you, and my honor is to be interviewed by you, Larry.、Uh, let's start on、um, with a little bit of your personal history and background. I, I know you were born in Seoul, Korea,、uh, came here with your family at the age of ten, speaking 
not a word or maybe two words of English. And you found yourself plopped down in Philadelphia somewhere having to navigate your way. So tell us about those early years in the US. Yeah, so those are tough years for me. Um, I was 10 years old. Um, I started attending a public school in West Philly. And I was probably the only non-Black kid in school. Uh, maybe my sister being the only other one who joined me. And for a long time, um, not being able to speak English, not having anybody else who looked like me in school, it wasn't easy. Um, it wasn't that far into that process that I actually wound up transferring into a, another public school that in the United States became the first um, elementary school that offered ESL, English uh, for second language. So, so you were a pathbreaker already that early in life. Amazing. Yeah. It started young. Uh, I, I was a breaker of sort. I'm not sure if I was a path breaker. So what brought your parents to the U.S.? I and mean, why did they come? And what were their hopes and aspirations for themselves, but also for you? Yeah, it, it seems crazy, but I'm really grateful for my mother, who had uh, this uh, idea of bringing the family to the U.S. when her kids were younger. Um, back in the early 70s, when we moved here, it was deemed to be prudent to have kids in Korea ultimately get college education from the U.S. so that when they come back to Korea, they can get the right jobs and be on the right professional track. But my mother thought that that sounds crazy because you can't send an 18-year-old to college without speaking any English first and expect them to do well in school. So she said, why don't we go there earlier, allow the kids to speak English first before uh, going to college. And then after college, then we can all come back as a family. You came um, and you never went back. I mean, even though that was the plan, right? Well, I mean, when the kids finally finished their uh, school, including college, we were adults. And when my dad said, okay, we're all ready to go back, we said, we're not going back. <laughs> we're a bunch of bananas now, yellow on the outside, white on the inside. How are we going to go back? So, uh, And why would we go back? We love it here. So that killed the idea of actually going back. And we said to my dad, you can go back if you like. And he wasn't going to go back by himself at that point. So you were ready to jettison him if you wanted yes. to go. <laughs> yes. And by then, honestly, he fell in love with golf and he couldn't play as much golf back in Korea. So it wasn't a crazy idea for him to stay here as well. Now, they left their careers behind, and they ended up being small business owners in the U.S., right? So, I mean, they had a very frantic life, and you were left tending the home front, as I understand. Yeah, that was tough. At least it was initially very tough. My dad was a kind of a mid-level bureaucrat at City Hall. My this is back in Korea. Back in Korea, both professionals. And for them to give that up, and then all of a sudden, my dad is mopping the floor uh, with blisters on his hand as a janitor. That, that's not an easy transition, obviously, not being able to speak English. In fact, he passed away ultimately not being able to speak English that well. Um, so we all saw the sacrifice that my parents uh, made for our benefit. Yeah. Now, you would have, now you would think that watching your parents sacrifice like that, you would have become overnight a model student. Uh, and so tell me whether that actually happened or not. 
<laughs> Initially, I was not. Um, now, if you look at my resume, um, you might think that I did okay. But at the very beginning, um, I was up until sophomore in high school, a star in my wood shop and metal shop classes, which is what I really focused on. Honors English, honors math was not even close to what, I, what was on my uh, curriculum. So is it fair to say that you were actually sort of a lousy student at the beginning and then you somehow turned yeah. the corner? I, I, I was not a model student at all. So uh, model minority, I was not. You know, a lot, I've asked a lot of our guests what um, led them to the law. Um, now, in your case, it turns out, I think you were telling me this the other day, that your name actually you know, sort of set forth your, your, your fate, even though you may have resisted that for a while. So tell us about that. Yeah, a lot of people don't know this. And you, you explored something that uh, very few people know about. My Korean name is Tong Hun. Tong stands for uh, the word East. And if in the Chinese character, you would, it literally means uh, East. And Hun stands for law. So if you literally translate my Korean name, it's the law of the East. And my parents thought it would make sense for me to be a lawyer, uh, which is what they uh, thought I would become if I had stayed in Korea. Now, you might ask, why law? And that's because back in the 60s and 70s, law lawyer was considered a profession of the most, the utmost highest, highest respect in Korea. They were the highest paid and was respected the most. So you were named Law of the East and you became a Western lawyer. <laughs> um, so close enough, it right? Was, it, it was worse than that. Because I knew that, I had always been a rebel in my household and I was not going to be a lawyer. So I, I resisted being a lawyer all my life. And that was something that I think was kind of in the back of my mind as I was studying uh, theology in college um, so that um, I would not follow the, the path that my parents created for me. So tell us about the career path that you were on for a while until you um got off of that train and went onto the legal train. You said you said you studied theology. I mean, was yeah. religion a big part of your upbringing and uh, background? It was, but my parents were not pushy about my, uh, my religion. We were uh, all as a family attending church, but church in the early Asian immigrant life, particularly the Korean life, was more for social reasons than theological. It was where all, all of our friends were when we went to a Korean church uh, as a group. I loved philosophy. I, I, philosophy 101 as a freshman was a life transforming moment. As soon as I walked into the intro to philosophy class, I knew this was what I wanted to study. And I just fell in love with it. And theology became uh, a, a focus primarily because in my sophomore, at the end of my sophomore year, I took my first religion class and it was fantastic. So I wound up double majoring in philosophy and religion. And for the next two and a half years, my focus became theology. So what, what, so what did your parents think about that career path? As, that, they hated it. Going forward? 
And did they express themselves to you about that? Oh, yeah. My father would say, like, what are you going to do with theology? Like, are you going to be a minister? Um, and I said, Dad, have you ever heard of Martin Luther King? And Dad would literally say no. <laughs> <laughs> and I had in my mind becoming the first Asian-American Martin Luther King who was going to change the world. So you said earlier that you had an epiphany earlier in life that turned you into becoming a good student and then led your pathway into college. So what epiphany led you away from, uh, you know, the, the ministerial path? I owe uh, a ton to my friend that I met, another Korean American at the ESL school that I told you about earlier. Uh, he and I became quick friends and we kept in touch. One day I went to his house um, to have a meal at their home. And when I, when I went to his room, he, he was a year ahead of me. So I, when I was a sophomore, he was a junior in high school. On his desk were two college applications, one to Harvard, one to Yale. And I thought it was some sort of joke. I said, what is this for? And he said, it's my college application to those schools. And I said, you think you're going to go to Harvard or Yale? He said, yep. And I thought he was crazy. By the way, this kid who was a valedictorian of his high school, which was the best public high school in Philly, did go to Yale. Um, and I, that transformed what I wanted to do because I went back immediately to my high school and asked my guidance counselor, how do I get to Harvard or Yale? And she laughed me out the door. She said, with your focus on wood shop and metal shop, you have zilch. You have zero chance of getting into Harvard or Yale. So that did it. That turned you. Yeah. What do I have to do to get into a, a top school then? She said, you've got to start taking some honors classes and go into a different academic track, which is what I did starting junior year. I wound up taking honors, everything that I could get into. And then later, you obviously came to the realization that that the ministry and preaching was really not your calling. So, um, yeah. So, what, what, how did that light bulb go off? Yeah. Let me fill a little bit of gap between my sophomore year and, and then freshman year in college before I get to that. Okay. A key moment for me was not only the academics, but during high school, the only thing I really cared about besides woodshop and metal shop was soccer. Um, I was an all-star soccer player and it was good for my image as an Asian kid. Um, it was not easy to become popular in high school, but I felt like soccer was going to give me that. And I focused on that. I went to a public high school that was the reigning champion of South Jersey for like seven years in a row. And I did really well on that team and I got recruited. I went, I got recruited by actually Ivy League colleges. They don't have scholarship for that, but when they identified a kid who was pretty good in school and was good in academics, I got recruited. So I wound up actually getting into the University of Pennsylvania and I was thinking about going to the University of Pennsylvania until um, I went to go visit a small liberal arts men's college called Haverford. And there, I decided to invest my next four years, not because of academics, but because I thought I would have a better chance in being able to start as a varsity player at Haverford than a division one at Penn. So that gives you, even when I was 
focused on college, I was still focused on uh, non-academic things as my interest. Well, it was also rather, um, I would say, astute and calculating on your part, because you had a goal in mind. You thought this would probably get you there faster, or you'd have better odds of it. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I guess I was being practical about it. Um, yeah. So if I didn't have academic brain, at least I had some, uh, you know, practical brain. So I gather some friends of yours at some point persuaded you that given your, your personality and temperament and predilections and how you spent your free time, that being a minister was really not your true calling. Yeah, so I was headed for Yale Theology School, which two of my sweet mates ultimately went to. And I thought that would be the coolest thing, graduate from Yale Theology and then become Martin Luther King of the Asian community. And then my two roommates who uh, ultimately wound up there said, dude, you can't go to theology school. That's a joke, okay? Um, look at your life. Um, you spend most of your weekends, if not most of your college days, partying, um, hanging out with women you like a lot. Um, you go gambling regularly. Um, and the other thing you love doing is going skiing and other partying. Uh, why would you, how could you possibly last? How, how could you possibly enjoy theology as a profession or even graduate school? And that did it. They use the word, you like sins. Now, you may or may not want to use that word depending upon whether you feel comfortable. Well, I mean, we're, I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this in a, in a little bit later because there's a lesson here about self-awareness. Uh, that probably, <laughs> probably uh, you know, repeats throughout one's life. So you end up going to law school, you get through law school, um, and you end up first going to two law firms. You first went to a, a major Wall Street law firm, uh, and you were doing M&A work, I, as I understand it. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then you actually made a change. You made a change for a very deliberate reason. And you, yeah. Again, it was a yeah. sort of a thoughtful choice you made in terms of how to navigate yeah. your career and what you wanted to accomplish. Yeah. So. What I figured out was um, at a law firm, it's the rainmakers who rule. If without clients, um, you really don't have much say in the running of the firm or for that matter, your uh, position or career at the law firm. So I wanted to develop my own clients in 1980s. The kind of clients that I thought I could develop, they weren't interested in. In fact, I started working on some and they said, hey kid, just focus on your work. We're really not interested in you developing any clients. We have plenty of work. And that's when I switched to a mid-sized firm and decided to focus on developing my clients, develop some Korean American companies or what was then Korean companies starting to come to US for, uh, for business in the US. And I wanted to focus on that development um, as a pathway for my long-term career. Yeah. And I went to a mid-sized firm because of that. If you can transport yourself back to those early days in law firms in New York, um, there weren't many Asian lawyers around, and certainly not many at, at these firms. No. Did you feel that you fit in? Did you feel like you belonged, yeah. or did you feel quite the opposite? Oh man, that was it was tough. Um, there couldn't have been more than three or four in the entire firm. I was, I think I was second or third Asian at the firm. There were two Asian Americans who came from Colombia, me and Benedict Tai. Okay, my class, two roommates, I mean, two uh, classmates from Colombia. 
Benedict High was six over six foot tall, um, had long hair, um, big guy, and was a polio victim. Okay, so he walked with a limp. I was short, thin kid, and looked very different from Ben, but Ben was called Don all the time, and I was called <laughs> Ben all the time. Now, the best part of this deal was that Ben was a lot smarter than me. So I got the better of the two, uh, two people you know, being confused, but poor Ben, he was called Don all the time, the stupid one. So <laughs> that's how easily confused we were, and that was reflective of the lack of Asian American uh, presence and lack of understanding of Asian Americans. We all look the same, if, if you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, obviously things have changed a lot since those early days, uh, but uh, you, you, what you say brings back a lot of memories. So yeah. let's, let's now turn to the chapter in your legal career where you went in-house. I mean, you, uh, by my count, you ended up um, at five different roles in roughly 30 years. And so there's, there was a succession of jobs of uh, increasing complexity, scale, you know, global reach. Um, and uh, let's talk about that. Uh, I don't want to you know, dwell on each step too long, but let's, let's take, take the first job you took and, and, and tell us why you made the choices you did and what were the factors yeah. that influenced you? Yeah, so I was about a fourth year, fifth year associate. I'm trying to, 1992. I would have not uh, been my fifth. I was a fifth year associate working at a mid-sized firm when I got a call from a, a headhunter. Um, a headhunter from Philly, which uh, was my hometown for me. My parents were there. My siblings were there. <laughs> my friends were there. And he was trying to convince me to come uh, work in Philly at an in-house, in an in-house position. I didn't know what an in-house position was. Uh, when I did a little bit of homework, everybody told me, well, in-house is where you go to die. Like it's where you retire to, and it's the moment before you die, you do a little bit of work for low pay. And it's for people who couldn't cut it at a big firm that you went in-house. So why would you want to do that? So you signed and up. So I did, it was perfect <laughs> for me. I, I, I may actually shine in that environment. Um, I did it because I went to go interview with a company called U.S. Healthcare, which was a fast-growing, one of the largest uh, for-profit HMOs in the country at the time. And I loved the CEO who was a former taxi driver turned into a CEO. And I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, I didn't know much about it, but uh, they seemed to like me. I liked them. Uh, small company of about $3 billion in revenues, but not a startup. It was a mature company uh, that was well on its way to growing and becoming a much larger company. Yeah, so it brought you home to Philadelphia, which you wanted to do. And I think you were also sort of the one-person corporate department, right? And you, I mean, you did, you had a front row seat to what happens I, I joined the practice. Yes, I joined the gigantic legal department of seven lawyers. My general counsel was a litigator and he needed a corporate lawyer to be his right-hand man um, to do uh, board meetings, shareholder meetings, M&A deals, uh, you name it. And I wound up doing all kinds of things because he gained some confidence in me to 
asked me to do the day-to-day management of the legal department while he was focused primarily on business issues. And then six years later, you, you became a, a general, general counsel for the first time of a company, of a public company. Um, and, that, and that's a big step. I was a very young uh, general counsel of Fortune 500. For, Fortune 495, but Fortune 500. Um, I, think the, I think I was not ready. There was no doubt about the fact that I was both uh, lacking maturity, uh, lacking experience. I was lucky enough to get the job for a whole host of reasons. One of the reasons being the company was in financially tough situation. So maybe they couldn't find somebody who was qualified to, to take the job, but I jumped at the chance. Now, the way I got the job was through a re- uh, getting to know recruiters, which is another theme we should probably talk about because I really think that one of the things I invested some time in was getting to know critical recruiters who will influence companies in, being able, uh, in recruiting general counsels. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great point because I think those folks will come back to you over and over again throughout your career, and so taking the calls and being polite and listening to them, I think, uh, pays a lot of dividends. But I think you give yourself a little too little credit because my recollection is that when you took the Aetna job, you actually turned down some other opportunities with larger companies, where you would have had a smaller role. Um, and, it, yeah. and my, and my so, recollection is that by taking the job with the smaller company, you actually got a much better training for the GC job that you got seven years down the road. Yeah, I was somewhat lucky in taking that path. But before I took my first in-house job, I quickly lined up two other offers because I wanted to see what my options were. And the, the other two companies that I wound up ultimately getting offers from were from GE and Prudential, which were both huge companies at the time, and, and, and they're different companies now. But back then, GE would, probably had the largest legal department in the country. And the reason I turned down GE was it, was it felt more like a law firm. And I didn't feel like there was going to be much of a change in my lifestyle, the long hours, huge uh, legal department, et cetera. So I wound up turning that down, even though the company probably had the best reputation uh, among uh, legal departments across the country. Prudential, I turned it down because they wanted me, me to be one of 20 people who were gonna do private placements. And I, it just sounded like way too narrow of a niche. And I wound up going to a small company because I thought they would give me a lot of different type of work and I would enjoy different type of work. Well, so it seems like you went small and then landed the bigger job a bit down the road in, in a way that might, maybe it would not have happened otherwise. I don't think I would have had the experience to be able to make my candidacy as a general counsel of a large company viable. Um, GE would not have given me the role of being number two in the legal department, doing budget, hiring and firing lawyers, um, going to board meetings and advising the board and the CEO and the CFO. All of that became a really important experience for the GC job only because I went to a small company. Yeah, yeah. So then on to Toll Brothers. So for, yes. for a brief tour before uh, the next big job. So t- tell us about that transition. Yeah, so Bob Toll, the uh, CEO and one of the two founders of the company called me directly. And he had heard about me through networking. And that's something that um, 
early in my career, I started realizing, I, I, I don't even think I articulated it as a networking process. I just knew that getting your name out there and, and getting to know important people was important to my career. And it worked in the case of Bob Toll, who asked around, got my name, and decided to call me directly and said, I'm looking for JC. Are you interested? So, Don, all those years spent honing your partying skills actually got then redirected into networking. So, I actually paid some dividends here, right? Um, <laughs> I know some people who hate going to uh, cocktail receptions. They, they would prefer to uh, torture themselves than to go uh, hang out at a cocktail reception. For me, many of the cocktail receptions are like going to a party. You have a drink, you get to meet some people, and if you like somebody, you can yuck it up. Yeah, for me, it was no different than going to a party as a college student and meeting somebody new and getting to know them well. So the Toll Brothers job allows you to stay basically at home in Philadelphia, but into a much bigger role with a larger company with much more complexity. And so that was a a big step. Toll Brothers at the time was number one in the um, home building industry and incredibly well-respected. Bob Toll, who is a lawyer himself, uh, was probably the spokesman for the industry. So getting to know Bob, hanging out with Bob, get work for him was a really useful experience. I learned a ton, even though I wasn't I wasn't there that long to work for him. Right. Two years later, you found yourself at Xerox. So that was that was another big quantum leap, Bob. So so tell us about that it, and how that happened. Yeah. So I went uh, to Toll Brothers, developed a department of about twenty lawyers. And then all of a sudden I get a call from Xerox, which is um, a joke that I developed, which is how often in your lifetime do you get to work for a company whose name is a noun, verb, and adjective of the English language? And I couldn't let that go. So a big step up, but obviously a very complicated decision you had to make because there were a number yeah. of factors that pointed in opposite directions. So, yeah. you know, family, uh, kids in school, your relocation, you know, leaving your hometown. Yeah. And so th that must have been a complicated process with your family and kids. It was a tough choice. My kids were 12 and 10 at the time. My 12-year-old Jessica did not want me to move. She said, why can't you commute? I know it's four hours drive each way, but why can't you commute uh, to Connecticut. And I said, I can't. Then her next line was, Dad, why are you doing this to me? <laughs> and I said, Jessica, I'm not trying to torture you. Um, and I knew how tough it was. Asking a, a middle school student to move to a different state was not an easy decision. But the family came together and... Uh... Eventually, eventually, they all came together. Uh, that. 12-year-old uh, Jessica is now a 26-year-old uh, professional, and she will tell you today that forcing her to move from Philly to Connecticut was one of the best things uh, that's ever happened to her because she learned how to adjust. She learned right. how to evolve. She learned how to network herself. Although I probably, I would bet that there are times during that period where it didn't feel, feel that way. You know, they, No, right? when, when, as a 12-year-old middle school student, she probably wanted to kill me. Well, listen, let's, so let's talk about that. We can spend another hour talking about your job at Xerox because I was a you know, legendary global company, tremendous CEOs that you work for there. But 
leaving that for the target role, uh, which then involved another huge move into a part of the country you'd never lived in before. So tell us about how that happened and how you evaluated that choice that was in front of you. Yeah, so for people who get to know me a little bit, um, they will know that I'm probably a little bit of an unusual lawyer in that I'm I'm a risk taker. Um, I will try cases more than some of the GCs may be willing to do. And the risk involved in moving from a comfortable geographic area with my friends and family nearby, um, I came to Minnesota uh, without any real basis uh, of friends or family in the area. I didn't know anything about retail. Uh, I mean, frankly, as I told uh, the recruiters who was recruiting me, I don't even like shopping. So to want to go to retail made no sense. Um, And I came out here as a single guy. That's the other thing. I hadn't lived by myself for a long time, but I decided to come out here solo uh, without a partner, without anybody. So the risks associated with that was pretty high. Um, Now, my logic was if it doesn't work out, I guess I can go back to the East Coast. I might take a step back in my career development, but the upside outweighed the downside uh, in my calculation, and I rolled the dice. Yeah, yeah. And how's it been for you? So, uh, you've been there for six years. How's it going? It's, it's, it, this will be the crowning moment of my career. It's the best decision I ever made. Um, it's an amazing experience helping the company turn around helping the company thrive. Um, and obviously I, I drank the Kool-Aid. Um, I think we're setting uh, the pace in the retail space. So Don, um, you've had a lot of jobs. Um, you've made a lot of changes. Um, and uh, you know when anyone looks at your resume, they see this constant progression into greater scope and responsibility. But as you and I have discussed, the, 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 the process of considering other opportunities, searching for jobs, turning them down, getting turned down, dealing with your family, all of that is emotionally exhausting and extremely time consuming. So what advice would you give people who are thinking about job change in terms of how to think about the various factors and how to weigh them? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really good question, Larry. So I have two or three uh, advice in, in, in when you think about attending jobs. One, never run away from a job. A lot of people wind up taking another job because they don't like the job that they have. And they're almost feeling like, I got to get out of this rut to go do something better. And I think very often when you do that, I think you move from one lousy job to a potentially another lousy job. I think that's a bad idea. I think you should always move from one job to another because you genuinely see something in the new job that is greater, better, and and, and allow, allow you to grow and learn. Yep. And if you take the job because you're, you're in pain with your existing one, you don't really get to objectively look at the new job in a way that will be uh, constructive in my view. So yep. That's one. Second, until you get to a point where you are near retirement, 
you should always be weighing different options. So I've always uh, tried to keep my tab on relationship with recruiters, um, what's going on in the industry, what's going on in the legal market, just so that I have a sense of, is it a hot market or is it a cold market? Are there great jobs out there or are there no good jobs out there right now? So, but primarily as a um, person who, who understands what I'm getting into, am I being fairly treated when I'm being recruited, whether financially, uh, responsibilities-wise, seniority-wise, et cetera. Um, when I was uh, negotiating my job for my job at Xerox, it was initially described as a vice president and general counsel role. Now, I said, I don't care about titles, but does the fact that you view general counsel as vice president re reflect how you view the role of a lawyer? Because if that's the case, then this may be a problem when I get there. So I wound up negotiating. The job I wound up getting was senior vice president and general counsel and eventually got promoted to executive vice president and, and GC when I left the company. But that gives you a sense of how GC should be looked at, how GC should be treated as a modern day company. And I did not want to go into a situation where I wasn't going to be happy. Those are those are great uh, words of advice. Uh, um, you know, you learn from all of the uh, various things you had to go through as you navigated your career. Earlier, we talked a little bit about. I joked a little bit about self awareness and about um, the importance of knowing yourself in order in order to get better at the things that you don't do well at and to get over things that may be impediments to your growth. Now, yeah. talk about that a little bit in terms of how you've learned become a better general counsel over time by learning more about yourself and understanding yourself better. When I was the general counsel of ICON at the age of 37, I was pretty lousy GC. I mean, I, I told you I was not mature. I wasn't ready for a host of reasons. I remember getting my first 360 results and it was painful. Now explain um, what a 360 is, just take briefly. Yeah. The 360 is an anonymous assessment done by your boss, your colleagues, and those people who work for you. And obviously, if the people who are going to work for you are going to be honest in assessing your strengths and weaknesses, it better be anonymous. Otherwise, it could be very awkward. So what my team told me was that I was at times arrogant, I was intimidating, and I was not a good listener. None of those traits make for a great leader. And I did that. They, they could I, have asked me. I would have told them that about you. <laughs> Thank goodness. I didn't know you then at the time. <laughs> um, when I looked in the mirror, I looked at, of course, handsome, tall, good looking, right? Um, good listener. I'm interested in what you have to say. Of course, only if, it's, if, it's, if it makes sense to me. And if, if you make great points, and if you didn't, I belittled you. And I, that, that, that was our lousy leadership skills. So when you first got that feedback, Don, was your initial impulse to reject it as being completely wrong and they don't understand me and they, 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 who were they talking to? Of course. I said, look, obviously there were a few people who didn't uh, understand what I was trying to do or they misunderstood uh, what I was trying to say. So at first I was in denial, but as 
I got deeper into it and I didn't accept the results on paper alone. I actually had um, group meetings where I asked people to volunteer and tell me like it is. And some of the people did. Some people actually said, Don, I said this. And the reason I said this was for the following reasons. And I said, give me an example. Well, remember the time you asked me to write a memo describing everything that are that are outlines from the probable to the unlikely and give you all the different options? Yes. What did you say when I finally gave you the five different paths we can go? I don't remember. He said, are you serious? You, two of those options? Like, you really mean it? Oh, yeah, I, I did say that. Well, boss, you told me to write down all the different options, including the ones that I'm not recommending. And you belittled me for writing the two options that's unlikely. And I said, I did. See? And I said, I'm sorry. That, that, was, that was a horrible response to uh, you meeting my request. By the way, Don, I, I have to say it took amazing courage for your team to be able to have that honest conversation with you. I mean, that itself says something about you because they must have known that they could do that without repercussion. I, I'm forever indebted to them for essentially changing my career path to the one that I have. By the way, that team um, they didn't do so bad themselves. Uh, one's a Fortune 500 GC. One's the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. Um, another one heads up litigation for another large company. So, I mean, they did okay, but I was lucky enough to have people who were um, brave enough and smart enough to inform the boss on how to become a better boss. Yeah. So, when, when was that 360 done? In year 2000. Okay. You told me the other day that you still keep that in your top drawer and you still refer to it. Tell me why that is. Why is that still necessary? Um, remember, every time I move jo uh, jobs, I'm cleaning out my files, I'm cleaning out everything so that I, you throw out you don't, things you don't need, right? And every time I, I, I run into that particular 360 results, I go, I need to keep this because it's a great reminder of my weaknesses, my gap that I have to constantly address and think about because you don't really change. You, you, who you are, what you are, rarely become totally different. You can manage it. You can try to control it, but you don't really become a different human being. And it's a constant reminder of my weakness that I have to make effort to address. And uh, don't you agree that um, in times of stress, all of those tendencies come out in full force? I do. I really do. I mean, every time things go wrong, or every time um, I get upset, these tendencies creep out, and I have to constantly remind myself, I can't do that. So I, I have some tricks I learn, right? I mean, when somebody tells me reason really stupid, I count till 10 before I respond, which is a trick that I learned, that I learned in year 2000, and I go one, a two. And then by, by the time I count 10, it doesn't sound as bad. I was going to ask you how quickly you counted, but we'll, we'll leave that. Um, but Don, um, let's switch for, uh, topics for a minute before we, uh, we finish up. Um, you have been a long time 
supporter, champion, advocate, and believer in NAPABA and organizations like NAPABA. Um, tell me why that is and why that's still relevant today. Yeah, so NAPABA meant um, so much for me. Um, first, uh, one of my earliest things that happened uh, when I started attending NAPABA was to run into guys like Larry Tu, uh, Javay Chaudhry, uh, Ivan Fong. Uh, those are some of the earliest uh, in-house leaders I met who were Asian Americans. And I met them at NAPABA. When I started talking about my job, when I started hearing about their job, we had so much in common. And then we started hearing from others who said, I too want a job like yours. How do I get one of those jobs? And when we started talking, we said, you know what? We can actually help others get these jobs. If we can get these jobs, there are a whole bunch of other people who are smarter than us who can get these jobs. So we decided we're going to help these other people to get these jobs and help their career. And it meant so much to me to be able to help them because when I was younger, there were so few Asian Americans who I can model myself after, who can mentor me, who could help me with my career, that I thought Napabo was an amazing means by which we can utilize the assets that were gathered there to, for the benefit of much larger number of Asian American leaders. Well, there's so many leaders like you who have been such uh, instrumental forces behind Napabo that you guys deserve a lot of credit. So thank you for everything you do there. And, and uh, you too, Larry. Well, no, of course. Uh, thank you. Thank you. So Don, um, you, I know you left behind early in life the ministerial path and the preacher bully pulpit um, role. Is there that role in your future? No. <laughs> That's not going to be your second career. No. But I do wish that at some point when I'm done with my corporate career, to spend more time on trying to make the world a better place, um, which was the idea behind studying theology and going to law school to become a civil rights lawyer. And I do some now on weekends after hours, but to be able to have more time so that I can devote myself to improving the lives of those people who need it, would be really fulfilling. Well, Don, thank you very much. This was a great conversation and thank you for joining our Coffee House series. Thank you, Larry. I enjoyed it.